you know how bars of soap can get all sticky and kind of gooey and gross? Yeah, they get that soft, gross part on the bottom when you have them in a dish. Yeah. Uh, Kevin here has a tip. Okay, well, um, we were over at a friend's house, and we noticed that they had set up their soap such that it was resting on a bottle cap. It prevents it from getting the counter all slimy and kind of resting in its own goo. Yeah. <laughs> right. So you're you're taking the kind of ripply side of the bottle cap and driving it into the soap? Yes. All right. Correct. Oh, and so what that does is it creates a little space so that prevents the soap from getting all gooey. So basically there's no contact between the soap and the actual counter. Until until they invent hover soap, this is the only thing we have really. Right, exactly. This is How to Do Everything. I'm Mike. And I'm Ian. On today's show, how to grow and care for the world's grossest plant. It's more difficult than you think. We'll also tell you how to raise chickens in the city. And we'll have one more Iditarod dispatch from the mushing mortician. But first... And I'm hopeful that all of you are actually following presidential politics. I see that uh, both Newt Gingrich and Rick Santorum now have Secret Service with them on the campaign trail. And in Santorum's case, I think it's the first time he's actually ever used protection. So, That's Senator Scott Brown of Massachusetts. And it's true, uh, Newt Gingrich and Rick Santorum, as well as Mitt Romney, now have Secret Service protection. Which means they all have Secret Service nicknames. Romney's chosen nickname is Javelin. Santorum is Petrus. Uh, so how do they get these code names? Joining us now is historian Michael Beschloss. So Michael, how far back does this go? pretty much goes back to the beginning of the era after World War II with Harry Truman, who was called General. Truman had been in the military. He had been a captain in World War I, so maybe this is his Walter Mitty fantasy that he might have been a general. <laughs> yeah. So you, so Truman would have chosen, chosen that? Usually uh, a president or anyone else who's protected gets a list of possible code names, and they get to choose. And if it's something too awful, they can choose something else. Wait, so what... Who comes up with that list? Within the Secret Service, there are people who do this essentially for a living, and sometimes they make mistakes. For instance, when Nelson Rockefeller was vice president in the 1970s, someone came up with a bright idea of calling his wife Shooting Star. Uh, using the word shooting as a Secret Service code name was maybe not the best choice. <laughs> Um, so this uh, this list that they get, is there any rhyme or reason? Is there kind of a code within a code in these names? Sometimes there is. Uh, for instance, George H.W. Bush, when he was protected as vice president president, they gave him the name Timberwolf. The idea was in those days he ran a lot, so Timberwolf runs. Uh, Ronald Reagan was rawhide, you know, obvious reference to the fact that he had a ranch and liked to ride horses. I, I notice um, in looking at the Obama family's Secret Service code names, they're alliterative. They all start with R. Usually, if it's a presidential or vice presidential family, they all have the same initial. For instance, John Kennedy was Lancer. His wife was Lace. Lyndon Johnson, as vice president and president, was Volunteer. His wife was Victoria, which may not have been a choice that she liked. You know, and and one of the weird thing about these names is we know them. Like, they're not... Uh, particularly secret, as we think of code names as being, um, are, are they used in that way? Or, or yeah, they do tend to get used. For instance, uh, Ronald Reagan was rawhide all through his eight years, even after he was nearly assassinated in, in 1981. And what that shows is these names are not so much, you know, so that these people can go incognito or be referred to in an anonymous way. 
It's much more that when the agents are talking to one another, they can refer to these people very fast. It's a lot easier to say Rawhide is getting into the car than President Reagan is getting into his car. And are are there ever cases where someone has chosen a name that the Secret Service has rejected? I think if you were president, you can choose almost whatever you want. The Secret Service agents are pretty eager to be accommodating. Still, if I said I want to be Sir Awesome, they could they would have to call me that? Yeah, I think that's right. Uh, and if not, I think they would probably be transferred to Nome, Alaska or someplace they wouldn't <laughs> want to go. Well, Michael, thank you so much for, for talking this over with us. My pleasure. Thanks, guys. A corpse plant is blooming at Cornell University. And this is a big deal because it takes anywhere from 7 to 10 years for one of these to go from a seed to a blossoming plant. Carl Niklas is a plant biology professor at Cornell. So, Carl, when did your corpse plant start blooming? Well, it's, it's in full bloom right now. It started last night, so it's taken a while. But we're right at the stage where um, flowers can be pollinated. So what happens when it blooms? Well, um, when the plant starts to bloom, you don't see anything above ground because it's been dormant for between four to six months. So it grows completely underground. And then you see what looks like a big green thumb coming out of the ground, except this thumb achieves the size in a very short time of something that looks like a fire hydrant. Oh, And in about three or four days, uh, it can get up to five feet in height. And it looks like a very long, pale green cylinder with a cap on top. Wait, it goes from the size of a thumb to a five-foot-tall plant in a week? Yes, less than a week. Wow. Um, And so how does it get its name, the, the corpse plant? Because it smells like rotting flesh. Okay. <laughs> That's horrible. And it's it's gigantic, right? Yeah, it's, uh, I mean, you're talking about the smell or the plant? Well, I guess it's, it's not only does it smell bad, but it's giant, and so this, the smell must yeah. be magnified even. Yeah, it, it's, it's uh, I, um, I visited the bouquet today, and it smelled like you had um, about 10 or 20 rotting fish on a very hot day. It was pretty bad. <laughs> Wait, so but, how, how far away do you start smelling it? Um, I was at least 20 feet away. <laughs> so can you st- do you have to like cover your mouth when you go near it's it? Not, it's not that bad. You know, people write all sorts of stories about grown women and men fainting because they smell the, the, the corpse plant. It's not that bad. It's pretty bad, but it's not <laughs> going to make you pass out. Because you see, it, it, the, the plant uses that smell to attract insects to pollinate its flowers. But wow. why, But I mean, most flowers smell good, and they're able to attract <laughs> insects that well, they, way. Most of those flowers smell good to you and me, but the f- insects that this plant evolved with were beetles and flies that were attracted to rotting flesh. Okay. And, and a lot of flowers attract by virtue of their color. And so imagine what rotting flesh looks like. It's deep, kind of blood red, a little bit of shriveled with little pock marks and little little spots, and that's what 
this flowering object looks like because around all of these flowers sticking up on this pole in the center, there's something that looks like a ballerina's skirt. And on the inside of that skirt, it's absolutely blood red. Oh, wow. I mean, it, it looks like dried blood. <laughs> wow. It's really awesome. So it must feel, then this week, it must feel like a real, real achievement for everybody there that you've made it the 10 years it took to, to see a bloom. We're really very happy. That's a sweet smell of success, huh? <laughs> yes, the sweet smell of success, indeed. All right, well, thank you so much for, for telling us about the corpse plant. You're more than welcome. Thanks for, um, for asking about it. Uh, I have a chicken-related question. That's Jesse. Here's what happened. So a little while back, my boyfriend and I were brainstorming some epic pranks that we could pull on some friends of ours who all lived in a house together. And we thought it would be awesome if we could overnight erect some sort of chicken coop in their front yard all right. and stock it full of chickens. And, you know, we loved the idea, but the only problem was, you know, what was going to happen to the chickens the morning after, you know, after yeah. the prank had subsided. Yeah. And I wondered if they would be a viable pet for a, a city-living person. Huh. Well, now, people do have chickens, but they don't have them as pets. Well, you know, I'm sure, like, in a farm scenario, you could have chickens in the house, perhaps, but I feel like you don't see it too much in the city. Yeah, yeah. So, okay, so you're thinking that these would be domesticated chickens. Yeah, I'm uh -huh. like, can you just, you know, slap a diaper on a chicken and, you know live with it. Jesse, just to be straight, you're you're prepared to take these chickens on if your friends aren't willing to to foster them. Um, you know, I'll do whatever I have to do to prevent the the cruelty uh, towards yeah. chickens. Yes. Yeah, I think that's important to establish yeah. for everybody. Yeah, you want to you want to prank your friends, but you 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 don't want any chickens to get hurt in the process. Oh, yes. I am I am a lover of of chickens and all living all living things. Okay. okay. Okay, that's good. We'll look into this for you. All right. Thanks, guys. All right. I think we can do this. We can help out, Jesse. Sure. We're going to head out to a backyard farm here in Chicago, and John is going to show us around. You'll know we're there when we start speaking in hushed tones. We're here, and it's, it's definitely an urban setting. We have a busy street nearby. I can hear the train and buses going by. We have a fenced backyard, as you would in any Chicago neighborhood. Uh, yeah, it's different, though, because there's this beautiful chicken coop and fence and, uh, you know, five or six chickens running around. We have five chickens, and we have two silver-laced Wyandotes. Uh, we have two Aracanas, which are the light colors, and then one Astralorp, which is the blackbird with the green feathers. And I'm opening up the uh, run right now, and the run is where the chickens have a space outside to run around. You just let the, it looks like you just let them loose in your yard. Yeah, and they're really okay to come out. And they usually will kind of follow you around as you move around the yard. Um, but we try to let them out uh, at least a few times a week because they really like greens. Yeah, they're really, we can see right here, they're really, they've gone right for the grass. Right. And they continue to, their egg yolks actually get more orange the more greens they get. Would you ever uh, let them in your home? They tend to leave their droppings wherever they are, so I think that would be a problem. Well, that's a the question we got from from Jesse. She had wondered if it, if you had them as a pet, if you could put diapers on them. There's a problem with that, and I I see that because 
you can see if you look at the back of the bird it's very kind of a poofy almost down like feather yeah. Yeah. and that feather is used to keep their eggs warm and so if you now stop their excretions i think that would just become sort of a mess and wouldn't really yeah. serve its function what a, what about like a litter box well i can show you the litter box that we have so they so they don't just uh, like free range poop they do it in a well let me sh- let me show you here so uh, I'm about to open up our coop and we actually lock our coop because we've had some people from the neighborhood come onto the property seeing them and actually give them a little bit of trouble so we just keep a lock you know two locks on each of the doors and if you look inside you can see the bedding which mm-hmm. is where they do their droppings and that is actually coffee chaff. Uh, it's a leftover after the bean. And if you look and you can't smell a thing, really, because the droppings are covered by the chaff. It smells very good. It smells almost like coffee. Yeah, like sawdust mm-hmm. mixed with coffee. If I wanted to have a chicken as a pet, and now that you have, you've had this time with these five, like, could I, can you pet the chickens? Absolutely, let me pick one up. It might be a little difficult to catch it, but they're, you know, they're pretty calm once mm-hmm. you get a hold of them. What's, what's that chicken's name? Uh, this one doesn't have an... They don't have really names. Yeah. But we did have... In the beginning, we had names like Home Skillet and Big Mama Jama and uh, um, Julian was another one. Where did that come from? Uh, I'm not sure. And you have you have neighbors here now. Do you get a lot of... You don't get any grief, do you? Uh, we haven't yet, and I think that's largely because we don't have a rooster. Definitely don't get a rooster. Many people don't know this, but you don't need a rooster for eggs. Yeah, so the eggs are coming either way. Absolutely. So if you look inside the nesting box today, there are three eggs. And these are probably... These are still warm. You can actually feel them. Um, oh, yeah. And... They're different colors. You can see that one is brown and one is a light color. And there's also, um, I brought out some eggs that are on the table, and some of them are green. And um, that's based on the ear color or skin color of the bird. We say, according to the University of Illinois, uh, by the way, white earlobes, you get white eggs. And if you have brown eggs, they came from a chicken with red earlobes. Yeah. It is nice being around them. They're... They're just kind of funny to look at. They're definitely uh, entertaining. Yeah. And I like to think it's it's called Farm TV when we come out and watch them. <laughs> and sometimes we've seen the episode before, and sometimes it's a new episode. <laughs> it's cute. Last week, we heard the story of Marshall, the dog that Iditarod musher Scott Jansen saved with mouth-to-snout resuscitation. Many of you uh, complained that uh, the story had made you cry. Uh, we want to mention that Marshall is, is still doing fine, and we want to hear one more story from the Iditarod. So, Scott, tell us what happened after you dropped off Marshall. We were outside of Ruby, and I was following a friend, uh, Kelly Maxner, who was right ahead of me. Uh-huh. And Kelly, <clears throat> Kelly stopped, and he yelled back. He said, he asked if I had a gun. There was a moose in the trail that was threatening his team. <laughs> and so I carry a forty-four revolver, and uh, he's uh, standing in the trail, and, and moose will growl like a grizzly bear. Most people don't know it, but yeah. when you hear a moose growl, it's, it's amazing. 
And so this moose is up there growling. He's stomping his feet on the ground. And so Kelly went up in front of his team, and Kelly shot again up in the air. Well, when he shot up in the air, it scared both the teams. And both teams turned around and ran back to their sleds. And when my team did that, they got into a big tangle up. And I had two of my female dogs were in heat. Oh. And um, and so all of a sudden, one, one of the males took advantage of that opportunity. <laughs> and um, and uh, and so when dogs, when they hook up, they'll get what we call locked up. And so you can't pull them apart. And I sat there for almost an hour. And wow. finally, Brahman comes off of cashmere. And... Um, and uh, I get the team all straightened out and everything. But at the during that hour, the aurora borealis was unbelievable. Are, are you going to have puppies when you get to the finish line? Well, uh, she, I'm, Cashmere went out of heat right away, so she it must have taken. Oh, and so so when I came in, I said, "Hey, big news! We're going to have my Ditterod puppy." <laughs> Does that? And, and if I were going to just, you know, just to pick two dogs that I want to have puppies, yeah. uh, Brahmin and Cashmere are just a perfect mix. <laughs> and, uh, and and so, yeah, we'll have some Iditarod puppies. Well, I uh, I hope the, the rest of the trip isn't isn't as uh, eventful as the, the, the first 600 miles have been. Um, well, as long as the dog, as long as the dogs are OK, I'm saying bring it on. Right. You know? it's, it's like what, the, you know, I always say, if you're going to be a bear, be a grizzly. Yeah. That's, you know, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just proving it to myself. Yeah. Quick update on our uh, How to Do Everything March Madness bracket pool. Uh, first place right now, Jill Ness is tied with Beth Nelson. So congrats. May your good luck continue. Uh, we want to talk to last year's um, last place finisher, Ray Moore. So, Ray, how's the tournament going for you this year? Not very well, unfortunately. What place are you in at this point in the tournament? I don't know, like four from the bottom. Uh, 57th, actually. 57th <laughs> place. So um, did you take our... I know we kind of steered you wrong with some of our advice last year. Did you take any of the advice we got from Dick Vitale this year? I did. Okay. How did how did you put it to use? Um, well, uh, I believe it was uh, Murray State. Yep. Yeah. It was mm-hmm. this big team, and I was like, yeah, Murray State, let's do it. And you did it, didn't you? I did. All the way to the, I'm looking at your bracket right here, all the way to the final four with yeah. uh, Murray State. I also tried to make friends who like basketball this year. Oh, that's a good idea. And um, gather information from them, but they're huge Kentucky fans, so that wasn't very helpful. Right. Because everyone's picking Kentucky. Yeah, that's right. true. That's true. Did you did you have any other strategies uh, after last year's performance? Anything else you, you did to try and improve this year's bracket? Um, I don't know about improving. Uh, I did kind of go out on my own. I'm about to drive across country, and so I picked cities that I'm going to be visiting, uh, UNLV, San Diego State. I thought yeah. I'll cheer for them in case, you know, it goes well, and then I'm there. I can say, I picked you, you know. That's a yeah. great idea. Yeah, it, it's not working out either. It's fun, though. I mean, it's... It, it is fun. <laughs> it adds a new dimension to your road trip. Absolutely. Well... I gotta say, I'm so I was so happy to see that you had signed up for the tournament again uh, this year, and uh, I hope that you just rise through the ranks and um, w- win. Well, I think based on where you're at now, Ray, you have a pretty good shot at losing this thing again. <laughs> I, I I think you're right. We if I could right. take last place two years in a row, I think actually that would make me just as happy as winning. Yeah, that is a feat. Um, let me ask you this: so you're you're about to go on a road trip? 
Yes. Do you have any questions that we could help you with? You know, how, Actually, how I do. Okay. I wanted to know how to make a really like strong road trip playlist. Oh. I'll be driving for about six days, so All right. I need sure. some really good music. All right. Thanks a lot, Ray. All right. Thank you. You know what, Ray? We're just going to help you right now. Yeah, join us now in the studio are Jim DeRogatis and Greg Cott. They host the public radio show Sound Opinions. We're going to make a little road trip mix for you. So, Jim, Greg, what can we do for Ray? All right. I think any road trip tape has got to start out with the immortal Roadrunner by Jonathan Richmond and the Modern Lovers. All right. And that notion of speeding down the highway with the windows open and the radio on, it doesn't get any better than that. One, two, three, four, five, six. Okay, what do you, what's next? Well, I'm going to recommend uh, Otis Redding. Got to have some Otis Redding for your road trip, and particularly the Live in Europe record, where he takes every one of his classic hits and then speeds them up. So they sound like ten times as fast. It almost right. sounds like a punk band playing Stax soul hits. What's next? Gotta have some Noi. German art rock band from the early 70s, N-E-U, exclamation point, Noi, it meant new. They were devoted to a, a beat, a rhythm that they called motorique. It was the sound of speeding down the Autobahn, which everyone knows has no speed limit, in the middle of the night with the only thing coming at you in the headlights, that white line, you know, the, the, the median. It's propulsive. It, it's, this, it's, it's the best auto-driving music ever. All right, my, my final one, you know, I, I will recommend the entire album, too. I got a specific track. I, I love Neil Young and Decade, that that old three vinyl album, now two CD best of compilation of, of like the first, uh, what's now the first third of his career. I mean, there's not a bad song on it. And I don't know, something about, especially driving in the Midwest, listening to Neil Young. I've, I've driven literally cross country with nothing but that album. But if you have to use one song, I think Long May You Run. You know, even when you run out of highway, Long May <laughs> You Keep Running. Until all these changes have come, Long May You Run. Well, this is a pretty awesome mixtape. Thanks so much, guys. You bet. Our pleasure. Long may you run. Long may you run. Although these changes have come. With your chrome heart shining in the sun. Long
That does it for this week's show. What we learned today, Mike? I learned that you can tell the color of a chicken's egg based on it, the color of its ear. Yeah. I don't even know where the chicken's ear is. Yeah, that's going to be the problem. I learned that uh, so much happened uh, during the Iditarod. Those puppies are going to have the best story. Yeah, I wonder if that would be something that the parents would would enjoy retelling. Yeah. Oh, there we were. We were tangled up. Yeah, All I our friends were there. We were surrounded by 13 other dogs. The heart wants what it wants when it wants it, no matter who's watching. If you're a dog. All right, so we noticed that uh, a lot of votes are still coming in for the world's best worst song contest. So we're going to keep the voting open. Um, we extend the voting for another week. So send us your votes. You can find us on Facebook, uh, on Twitter. Or you can send us an email to howto at npr.org. How to Do Everything is produced by Blythe Hega with technical direction from Lorna White. Our intern this week is Kate Casey. Her Secret Service code name is Intern. Kate Casey. Get us your questions at howto at npr.org. And check out our website, howtodoeverything.org. I'm Ian. And I'm Mike. Thanks. Thanks.